This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome to Oh God, What Now? Out a day early for one week only to make room for a very special episode on Boris Johnson's COVID inquiry appearance. Merry Christmas. I'm Dorian Linsky. On today's show, following Suella Braveman's fascism-adjacent uh, sacking speech, what on earth is going on with Home Secretary James Cleverley's draconian new immigration restrictions? Plus, we'll empty the mailbag to answer a bumper copy of your questions in a But Your Email special. And in the extra bit for Patreon backers, Kieran Maggie sitting in a tree K-I-S-S-I-N-G, possibly. We discuss why Starmer's fleeting praise for Thatcher has made so many people see red. Let's meet the panel. Hello to commentator Alex Andrea. Hello, Alex. Hi, Dorian. Like I said, there is a special episode coming, but you are uh, on the COVID inquiry beat. Yeah. What are your first impressions of Boris Johnson's uh, eloquent and stirring appearance? So we're recording exactly halfway through his evidence, basically. The mm. um, first day just finished. And it's pretty much as, as I predicted last week. There's basically a large uh, vibe of nobody knows the trouble I've seen, nobody knows but Jesus. Um, there, there's a pinch of... Um, oh, I was only saying that to test the argument, you know, I was pretending to be dim here just to make them explain it properly. Um, there's a big dollop of I don't know and I can't remember. Big okay. dollop of yeah. that. I think he said I can't remember to 18 questions. That's very Watergate of him. Yeah. Um, but the main cause has been without a doubt in retrospect. He frames everything by saying, well, in retrospect, I wouldn't have done that. Or in retrospect, I wouldn't have said that. Or I would have acted earlier. I would have done something right. different. So it's very much at the time who knew. Yeah. yeah. And and I'll give you a really quick example of how um, disingenuous that is, actually. Because he said that in relation to shaking hands. He said, well, in retrospect, I shouldn't have said that I went to that hospital and shook hands with everyone. But there's no retrospect here. He was literally flanked by the chief scientific advisor and the chief, the chief medical officer who had just said, <laughs> literally just said, don't shake hands, avoid physical contact. And he undercut that by going, well, I've just been to a hospital and I shook hands with everyone. So... <laughs> I don't understand what the retrospect is that would have given him the wisdom to mm. not act like a twat. Well, there will be more, uh, more to come on that. Marie Leconte is a journalist and author of Haven't You Heard and Escape. Hello, Marie. Oxford University Press has crowned its word of the year, Riz. What is a Riz and where can we get one? I'm actually really delighted by this because I know what Riz is. And in fact, I use it in sentences. I mean, not very often, but occasionally. So it turns out I'm not entirely decrepit at the very advanced age of 31 and three quarters. Uh, but no, Riz is technically short for charisma. But in practice, it's more used. But it's, it's quite hard. It's a bit like BDE from a few years ago. It's one of those words of, you know, you know it when you see it. You know if someone has Riz. What was BDE? BDE. Do you not remember? Big Dick Energy. <laughs> Oh, BDE. Yeah. Got it. Okay, sorry. Um, no, I remember. I was there. <laughs> <laughs> but it's no, so one of those, you know, you either have it or you uh, or you don't. But I will say, I think I personally mostly use riz uh, as a kind of active thing. So I think rizzing someone or being rizzed by someone, meaning like hitting on someone, being hit on by someone, is definitely something that entered my lexicon. So it's sexy charisma, not like dictator charisma. No, exactly. So, I mean, the way I explained it but to... But Mussolini, you wouldn't say, had riz. I, I, I mean, I never met him. Maybe he did. Um, I oh, think actually, a, he yeah. did. No, he you did. He, he kind of raised Italy. Um, yeah. <laughs> but no, so I think that the way I explained it to a friend was, uh, you know, like John Wilkes, the famous journalist and uh, politician uh, of all. So his brag was always that he was very ugly, but it took him about half an hour to talk away his face with women. Um, and that's Riz. I feel like that's essentially Riz. 
Good to know. Um, <laughs> Gavin Esler. <laughs> I don't know what he thinks of Riz, but he's a former host of Newsnight, current host of This Is Not A Drill, and author of Britain Is Better Than This. Hello, Gavin. Hello. I thought you were talking about Riz Sunak, but obviously not. <laughs> he's not Riz. He's not Riz. Apparently. I'm just no, looking he at doesn't have, He doesn't have. No, no, he doesn't have. You're not, yeah, you, you have or you don't. You, you're not. You're it's not, not a state no. of being. I'm, being. I'm being deliberately high court judge about this. <laughs> Am I Riz? Um, <laughs> Gavin, Rishi Sunak uh, has promised um, a plan to restore power sharing at Stormont. Um, how long, can you remind people how long this has not been working for? And has he given any clues as to what he's going to do about it? I, sorry, you lost me at the words Riz, Riz Sunak has promised a plan. <laughs> I mean, you know, when is he not promised a plan? Look, the story is very simple. The DUP, in that memorable phrase of Abba Ibn, once talking wrongly, I thought, about the Palestinians, the DUP never miss an opportunity to miss an opportunity. They've blown it with Brexit. They suddenly discovered that you couldn't trust Boris Johnson, uh, who moved the border in trade terms to the Irish Sea. And they, in a hissy fit, they decided to bring down the Stormont administration. Why they're worried is they know that the rumours in Westminster are that Sunak is more likely to go for a May election. And they're terrified by this because a Labour government will give them a much worse deal than anything Sunak might cobble together. They're also terrified by the fact that actually, um, Guess guess which party seems to be polling extremely well on both sides of the Irish border? It's Sinn Féin. I, happened to, I was in Belfast three weeks ago. I met Mary Lou MacDonald, the leader of Sinn Féin. She's got a very good chance of being Irish Taoiseach, Prime Minister of Ireland. They're doing so well in Northern Ireland that I was stunned to bump into uh, a, a member of the Legislative Assembly for Sinn Féin. He's called Declan Kearney. And he represents South Antrim, where I used to live, which is a largely Protestant and unionist area. So the DUP have really got the wind up them and they are trying finally to uh, cobble something together. And the th something they may cobble together because they will have to swallow the idea that Sinn Féin could be running Northern Ireland in a power sharing executive or have the slightly biggest say. So the question is whether Sunak can come up with some cobbled together deal that's less stupid than the Rwanda policy. And I've yet to well, see it, but there is no a high bar, is well, it? Well, as, as we know, he's a political <laughs> genius. So um, I'm very confident about this. <laughs> Me too. Before we go into the main topic, some news. Oh, God, what now? The Christmas show is next week. That's right. We're coming to you live and at our festivist on the 13th of December at the Comedy Store in London. It's sold out. But if you didn't get a ticket or you're lucky enough to live outside London, we're streaming the show live for Patreon backers. Just search for Patreon. Oh, God, what now? Sign up. And just before the show, we'll send you the link to watch it live. And you'll get a video of the show afterwards to watch at your leisure so you can treat the family to myself, Roz, Dorian and special guest James O'Brien on Christmas Day instead of Mrs Brown's boys. Also, we're using the Comedy Store's upscale cameras and streaming technology so you will get much better picture and audio quality than in the past. Sign up now and we'll see you on the night. Now, topic one has kind of been gazumped uh, by Suella Braverman's uh, fake resignation speech because she didn't resign. Yeah, she was sacked. Yeah. I don't know why she gets to call it that. Um, so before we get into what we're actually going to be talking about, which is immigration policy, um, Alex, you watched the whole thing, yeah. the whole balcony speech. So Yeah, it was only about four minutes. It um, was four very long minutes, I will say. Though. Four very long minutes, that is true. Um, how fash on a scale of one to ten? Fashy, proper fashy. Um, so what she did was she made a whole bunch of completely um, wrong statements. So she she talked about a, an unprecedented, uncontrolled, and mass mass wave of immigration, mainly young men with values and morals that are in contrast to our own. Um, uh, I, I would enjoy people whose values were in contrast to Suella Braverman's. Most of whom come from a safe country, many of whom are economic migrants. Um, so all of that is basically the premise is set up fallaciously. And then she went on to link them to rapists, murderers, terrorism, 
people who pull down statues, people who glue themselves to the pavement, and the prosecution of historical crimes in Northern Ireland. It's a lot going on. Yes. We um, didn't start the fire. Yeah. Yes. And the general theme for all that, you see, was human rights. Papui. It's quite interesting <laughs> to see someone use human to try and turn human rights into something like the way that people talk about woke or Americans talk about Black Lives Matter or Antifa. Yeah. Human rights is a phrase that most people quite like. Yeah, no, she doesn't. Um, and so that was the thrust. The thrust was, she said, who governs Britain? Who governs Britain, Dorian? That's an old is it uh, Edward Heath line. Is it us or is it them foreign courts and conventions? So basically, she just wants Britain to pull out of all international sort of uh, uh, treaties and tribunals so that we can do uh, human rights our way which involves just protecting the people we like, the hard-working family people of Britain, and none of those, you know, um, basically people who um, uh, have a, some notion of the colonial past. So or, not human rights. Environmental. British rights. Yeah, British rights, yeah. Okay. That's right, yeah. Brit British wives or British husbands, I think, was the thrust <laughs> of it. There was quite a lot of that. Yikes. Um, well, Home Secretary James Cleverly isn't a radical right headbanger like Swilla Bravman, but he'll play one if he has to. Uh, he <laughs> was in Rwanda this week, turning a memorandum of understanding between our two countries into the more official sounding revised treaty. Um, Supreme Court, you remember, smacked down the government by judging that Rwanda is not a safe country to send migrants to. Um, but now they found a cunning way to say that it is actually. It's very safe. At the same time, Cleverly has unveiled a raft of harsh policies intended to curb legal immigration. The minimum annual salary for skilled overseas workers has shot up from 26,200 to 38,700 pounds. The minimum for any worker who wants to bring their spouse is up to the same number, but from 18,600. There are also new restrictions on student visas. Restrictions galore. Um, Alex, the minimum wage is just over 20 grand, is around half of this new threshold. Who is going to be um, blocked? It's not clear because we're still trying. I just read a paper by the Migration Observatory and they're still trying to work out whether the threshold applies to skilled and unskilled jobs that is the same because the Home Office have not really re released any of the detail of the policy. It was just a very broad announcement. Cleverly also mentioned something in his speech about health and social care workers being exempt from this threshold. But then that wasn't picked up in any later announcements or analysis of the policy. Because it does seem like a kind of guaranteed collapse of the care system well, and yeah, parts of the NHS. A a absolutely. And so the, the answer is we don't know because the, the government has made this very broad announcement, basically probably knowing there was a, a revolt from the backbenches coming and they announced something precipitously to try and calm the right wing down, but they haven't put much uh, um, flesh on the bone. The one thing we do know, um, which is clear from a couple of papers I've seen, is that however this is applied, it will affect British workers who make the mistake of falling in love with someone who is not British more than it affects workers who are not British. Well, there's this... I mean, it does sort of... In, it, in a bizarre, it, extraordinary It does sort of way. turn love into like a sort of premium commodity. Well, um, because it, it applies to, obviously, people who want to bring their spouses to the UK, including people already living in the country, and seemingly British citizens returning from abroad, and those here who want to marry a non-citizen. And this seems both inhumane and unworkable, which does not stop the government from doing things. That's almost their sweet spot. But it genuinely seems to me, considering that you've even got quite prominent conservative commentators up in arms, that this is just not going to happen. Sure. And, and it also makes international love a thing for the well-paid, which right. I find quite extraordinary just as a concept. Like if your salary is above. But I, I guess their point of view would be just to play devil's advocate, just to put the Braverman view forward for a moment. How patriot, patriotic really is it for you to go on holiday and fall in love with some Italian woman? 
That's a good point. I, it's a devil. question. So it wasn't a rhetorical question, Dorian. Yeah. I was asking you to tell me how patriotic is it? Uh, unpat- I feel quite unpatriotic doing this podcast <laughs> with a Greek man and a Frenchwoman, to be honest. Now you put it that way. Um, Marie, the Sun led with access denied on its front page. Um, now, salience for immigration famously fell dramatically after Brexit. Um, now it's clear that Brexit didn't fix it after all, and the number has in fact tripled. How is it looking as a voter priority? Are, some people, are people sort of sufficiently up in arms that you can see the political utility of this policy? Um, yes and no. So it's definitely still. So if you kind of look at the tracker of all the all the possible things people, you know, voters can care about, immigration is in there. But crucially, I think cost of living crisis is so like so much further up compared to everything else. I think you've got that one. Then you've got the NHS, and then I think immigration does come third. But but again, you know, so like much much lower. So it it is definitely something that some people care about. Um, I'm not convinced it's an election winner, but I I think basically the people who do care about it are probably the people who would go and vote for the Reform Party over the Conservatives. Whose policy appears to be no immigration. Yeah. Because we just literally let the net zero, but for immigration. <laughs> I did really enjoy, I uh, sat on a um, focus group a few months ago and someone was like, well, easy, it should be one in, one out, um, which I found delightful as an idea. Like a guy with a clicker, like in a club <laughs> at Heathrow. That's great. <laughs> um, yeah, like, yeah, like families many, just left coming. How many are you? How many are you? But yes, yeah, so, so no, I... I think they're basically trying to do it because they're trying to keep hold of their kind of like seven and a half remaining voters. Uh, but I'm not, again, I'm not convinced it's going to really gain them anyone else. And obviously, I think surely the people they should be worried about is the Tory to Labour switchers. Uh, and I'm not convinced those people would be convinced um, by the Tories going hard on immigration. Shadow Chief Secretary to the Treasury, Darren Jones, said that Labour would cut net migration to 200,000, but the leadership sort of smacked that down. Um, Does Labour know what to say about immigration? I mean, obviously saying that it is both good and necessary seems to be taboo. So what is Labour's response? What what is what what a question uh, that I think has been asked in probably every other podcast on politics since about twenty ten <laughs> really ooh labour and immigration now I'm not convinced they really have a line like there's a bit of a Goldilocks thing I suspect of going well we're not quite as tough as the Tories but also we're not like the pinkos and you know the Green Party etc so we we still don't love immigrants we tolerate them uh, w- would be the way I would probably sort of phrase it. Um, but but I, I suspect that they're just still so terrified of bad headlines. Um, and, and, and it is such an obvious trap, I think. You know, if Labour goes, no, actually, you know, immigration is fine, which is factually correct. Or, you know, saying the economy would collapse without immigration, which, again, factually correct. They're, they're just worried that, you know, the sun in the mail would just kind of pillory them over days and days and days of front pages. But at the same time, they do realise that they can't go exactly full on, like, we agree with everything the Troy's doing. You know, Suella should cross the floor and join us uh, because they <laughs> would lose a large part of their electoral coalition. So so it is, I think, they are walking a tightrope, but well, they're still not another, doing a Another courageous job. stand. Well, on that, um, I hear a rumour that the OBR may release an updated forecast um, based on the government's new policy on immigration, because and, and you might see that famous headroom that uh, Jeremy Hunt had mm. to give tax cuts actually disappear <laughs> because their uh, projection of growth and GDP is very much based on current immigration trends. So if they think that this plan is serious and government is planning to halve it within a year, then that will impact their forecasts very, very um, directly, and I think that would be actually quite a good um, sort of corrective to the country out there. This is what happens. Yeah, I mean, the Tories are always going on about growth. Um, anyone who knows um, the economics of immigration says that you know it, it's uh, it's pretty much impossible to get growth if you're slashing immigration at the same time. Um, do most voters know that? No, they don't, and most politicians, although they know it, don't uh, ad- admit it. Uh, I'm going to be talking very shortly in a day or two to a guy called Hein de Haas, who's written a brilliant book about what you can do and what you can't do about migration. He said the only country that has really tackled it as an advanced economy is Japan, and they've settled for lower growth as a result and an aging workforce still having to work. Now, we could do that 
I suppose. But to, to, to answer Su- Suella Braverman's question, who governs Britain? You lot do. You know, the Conservatives. Oh, stupidly. Oh, I thought you meant us. <laughs> no, same. I was like looking at Alex and Dorian going, oh. Yeah, we, we're what? looking at each other going, shit, shit. have I forgotten to do something? <laughs> That's no, my department. That lot, okay. The Braverman, uh, the, the Braverman bunch have been running the country for the past 13 years and they are behaving as if they're in the opposition. It's all somebody else's fault. And they come up with these... Uh, I mean, she said um, the Conservative Party... Um, faces oblivion if the Rwanda policy fails. Well, I think this is a burden that many British people could bear with a degree of equanimity. I mean, the the idea of this policy is as a distraction. It involves a very small number of people and it confuses migration with asylum seeking and refugees. And it's done deliberately to do that. And we know what the, quote, problem is. The problem is that uh, Britain is a reasonably attractive country for low-paid workers from other countries to come to get skills and to do jobs that British people won't do. And it used to be quite often people from the European Union and now it's people from somewhere else. And that has fomented the the story that we're doing. We all know this, and yet it still goes on as if the government have got some kind of solution. I'm prepared to bet that, uh, to quote Keir Starmer, there will still be more conservative foreign secretaries having gone to Rwanda than actually people who were asylum seekers being deported there, because there will be more legal challenges too. I heard, um, um, far from being a legal expert, but I heard somebody who was yesterday on BBC radio saying, it seems that in going to Rwanda, Mr. Cleverly may have solved one of the 20 or so objections that the Supreme Court had to this policy but he hasn't solved all the other 19. So it will be bogged down in legal challenges. And what we're going to see is a lot of money spent given to Rwanda and given to lawyers to fight this. And then there'll be a general election. So, I mean, we are so distracted by this, but it is, to quote a a senior politician, batshit policy. Well, another obsession, as well as uh, Rwanda, is is numbers. Um, the government thinks these measures can cut net migration by 300,000 a year. Uh, David Cameron famously promised and failed to bring the number down to tens of thousands. Darren Jones, like I said, got into trouble for suggesting, uh, you know, you could get down to a couple of hundred thousand. A numerical targets, let alone caps, as a sort of rather wants. Any useful way to do this politically or practically? Well, uh, if you believe they are, come with me and I'll take you around our 40 new hospitals and I'll introduce you personally to our 20,000 new police officers. And, uh, you know, uh, I mean, this is just, I don't want to swear again, but this I sense is some sarcasm. <laughs> this is just nonsense. And it's a headline figure and it appeals to certain newspapers, but it's just utter nonsense. Now, net migration figures did hit a record 750,000 last year. There's various reasons for that. There's refugees from Ukraine and Hong Kong. There's student workers in industries with too many vacancies. There's a certain post-COVID factor as well. Is there any way, apart from the Japan option, um, which is the work till you die option, is there a way to cut that number in a reasonable way? That if you were a sort of sensible, humane minister um, and you were like, well, you know, maybe we could do something in this area, I- is there anything? There are a number of things that we could do. One is not make the mistakes that we've made in the past, which was, in my view, Brexit as well. Uh, secondly, we could, rec- we could wreck the economy. That would keep people out because um, uh, they, it would be a less attractive place to, place to come. And I seem to... don't feel you're being constructive. <laughs> that, seems, that seems to... Well, it seems to be the way things, <laughs> things are going. Let's trust can... tried, but they stopped it. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. We could reduce the value of the pound, which is uh, also something that has been done. Um, yes, we can. We can do things. Of course we can. But th- what the government is doing is seeking headlines, knowing that it will never actually be able to implement the kinds of policies they're talking. And the other thing we could do is actually have a proper grown-up discussion about what we mean by migration and also what we mean by asylum seekers. And one of the things that experts on on this are absolutely clear about. And one of them told me that the wall that uh, Donald Trump promised is a very good example. If you build a wall or put up barriers, what happens is people don't come as seasonal workers and go away again because they'd have to get back over the wall. They come as seasonal workers and they stay and become migrants. So we have done absolutely everything that will fail 
to control, as they would put it, the migration problem. Um, I believe I'm going to be the first ever person in history to utter these words, but I actually think Ed Miliband had quite a decent plan on immigration in 2015, uh, which I think everyone forgot because of the stupid mugs and everything. So I remember talking to one of his advisors um, after the election, and his point was saying, actually, what we wanted to do is kind of address the root causes. So he's saying, okay, fine, we, everyone agrees, I think, the entire political spectrum that we should not have companies relying on very cheap immigrant labor. You know, I think everyone agrees yep. for different reasons, mm -hmm. but still, and, you know, and he, that advisor said, you know, and so our plan was effectively to say, okay, A, much stronger legislation in terms of workers' rights, also really cracking down on, you know, anyone kind of paying people under minimum wage for these jobs. And also, you know, either raising the minimum wage or, again, really, really enforcing it. All of that would ensure that actually all these companies would have to either, you know, hire probably fewer migrants or just hire British people. Um, obviously, That, that that went, you know, really, really well for them in 2015, I would say. Um, but but I still think, you know, it wasn't worth giving up on that kind of policy, a way of addressing it entirely. Like, I think if you do address the root causes, then stuff will change. Alex, Dominic Cummings uh, says that the Rwanda plan was a diversion Johnson cooked up to distract from more complicated immigration issues. And Sunak <laughs> has fallen for it and kind of lashed himself to that mast of that sinking ship. Is it is is any of this is should we just see this as basically theatre? We know that James Cleverly doesn't like this plan. He's gone to Rwanda and now he's sort of has to stick up for it. Is there any and and Robert Jenner, who we will get to, yeah, um, he's going well. I guarantee you there'll be a flight before the next election, which doesn't seem like a big promise, but no. even that seems unlikely. Uh, I would disagree that theatre has some value. Um, You're an actor. This is displacement <laughs> activity, which is actually a negative thing. It it actually saps your energy away from stuff you should be doing. I mean, just just to put it in context, okay, we are in a country that had 745,000 people net migration last year, and we are still experiencing severe labor shortages. Mm. And we have spent the last two years in millions of pounds on an option that might knock a hundred people of that total. I, to me, that is the definition of just utter dysfunction in our political system. There is something very twisted, very broken. We have to have a, a, an adult debate about the actual thing, not, you know, not all the things around it. Um, and, and it seems to me top of that list would be um, excluding students from those totals. I never understood it and I still don't understand mm, it. Mm. Why you say anyone who stays or plans to stay for over a year goes into the migration figures, which means like a master's student coming over here literally for a year to do a master's counts in those figures, but they are coming with very few demands because of the rage, very few needs mm. and ready money to spend in the economy. And it just seems to me, I mean, what percentage of those figures are um, students? You know, what percentage of the dependents that uh, Cleverly is raging about are children, for instance? Um, and and that's, the, that's the wider point that I have met very, very few people that are genuinely dysphoric about foreign foreigners being around them. They are out there, but they're a very small minority. The vast majority of people get annoyed because they can't get a GP appointment because, you know, there, there's not enough school places. So you fix those things. That is the obvious answer. You fix those things. And then it's only a tiny minority that gives a shit about... You're a crazy dreamer, well, Alex. Mm -hmm. um, Marie, um, I tweeted the other day that whenever I turn on the Today programme and hear some kind of generic, slimy Tory minister I can't identify, and I have to, who's this? It's always Robert Jenrick. And then I realised that I tweeted the same thing three years ago. <laughs> and, that, and that I'm using pretty much the same words. And that I literally, like uh, Guy Pearce in Memento, just keep having a, a generic wipe. Um, but you need to tattoo Jenrick on your arm. <laughs> oh, it's Jenrick. Oh, yeah. As immigration minister, he seems to have turned from sort of loyalist slug into a bit of a Bravermanite. It's reported that more moderate measures were planned until Jenrick and some backbench ghouls intervened. As we look ahead to the post-election war for the alleged soul of the Tory party, am I finally going to have to 
get that tattoo? Is he going to become? Is 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 he is this new generic? Is he turning into something else? And we're going to have to think about him some more. I really don't think so. So, also, my one uh, slightly amusing thing about Robert Jenrick is that a friend of mine went to university with him, um, and apparently, like, annoyingly, they can't find the paper again. We're in the student paper, people were asking him what they wanted to do later, and he actually said prime minister, like, as an undergrad, which is just such a surefire sign of a wrong un. Um, um, <laughs> it really is. Um, but no, generally, I, I don't know. So, I, what I find quite interesting is that when Rishi came in and he did his first reshuffle, you know, and Jenrick was kind of appointed essentially number two at the Home Office. I feel like the kind of wisdom at the time was, okay, we know Suella's going to fuck it at some point, so he's put him there so he can just go, you know, next reshuffle or when Suella does have to go, he'll go like, and, and Robert, you know, now you come in. So I found it quite curious that he was not actually appointed to that job. So, I mean... I'm trying to put this delicately, but I think that even if, you know, Rishi Sunak looks at his benches and looks at you and think you're not worthy of being Home Secretary, um, then, you know, you're probably not very good. So, no, I, I would not worry, especially. I, I'm not convinced he's going to, you know, become the kind of uh, leader of the Conservatives or even a kingmaker. Like, I don't... He's one of those odd people who, as you say, uh, he's very much the minister for the Today programme, but he doesn't really come up in chats. I feel like, you know, when, when I talk to people in Westminster, he doesn't he doesn't really come up, uh, which is usually a sign that they're probably, you know, due to the way Westminster works, that they're probably not going to get very far. So no, I think it's fine. Hold the tattoo. Although again, I, I do actually have uh, tattooing needles and tattooing ink uh, in my house. So next time oh, I, I can you come back if you want. Someone on Twitter helpfully pointed out that his constituency is Newark, which is an anagram of wanker. <laughs> Which is maybe perhaps the, Why must you the, drop the, the mnemonic <laughs> that I need to remember who he is. I go, who's this wanker? Newark. Jenrick. Mm. Uh, I usually call him says Robert Jenrick. Uh, I just go Jobbert Renrick because uh, I really like, um, yeah. <laughs> can, can I add a, 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 a more general point? Because I think it, it really is getting lost in this. Um, th there is a question here about the government getting its way. And how far is a government allowed to go to get its way over Parliament and the courts? Okay, mm. I, I I was tweeted at one a.m. last night by Lord Moylan, right, mm. being told that I am subverting the British Constitution because I suggested that human rights are designed in a way that frustrates politicians very keen on circumventing human rights. They are by their nature put there to be obstacles uh, for people overreaching. And I think that's one aspect that's not being investigated enough. The government created a, a, a piece of legislation and was just told by the Supreme Court that it's unconstitutional, effectively. Yeah. And they're now introducing another piece of legislation to say, but we really, really want to do it. And, and I don't understand how that changes the jurisprudential mm. <laughs> position of this thing, which is basically about us outsourcing our, our global responsibility to refugees to another country. Well, my rule of thumb is that anyone who tweets you at 1am for any other reason, say anything other than I love that tune too, or <laughs> good TV show is wrong. <laughs> Lord or not. Yeah. I mean, they could be trying to raise you up as well. I feel like that's the last option. Of course. Oh, you think could, it was a booty call? They could be doing rizzing. <laughs> Lord Moylan was rizzing you. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Next up, we usually just do one a week, but as this is the season of giving, we're doing a But Your Email special. Uh, there's quite a few, so we're going we're gonna to try and rattle through them. To begin, Chris Rand. 
Generative AI will soon mean anyone can fake audio or video of anything. Nobody will know what to believe, and the biggest asset any organization can own is trust. At the moment, the BBC may still have more trust globally than any other organization. Should the government turn it into the world's best-funded, most trustworthy global news organization and abandon entertainment to the commercial sector? Gavin, you've got some BBC experience. A little bit. Yeah, I don't think I don't think those two things are mutually exclusive, actually. And one of the interesting things about this government is that it's wittered on for years about global Britain. And anything which is actually seen around the world as global Britain, including the BBC, has been diminished by underfunding and uh, just general government incompetence. So uh, I think uh, British culture... British writers, British filmmakers, British musicians, and the BBC and other broadcasters too, are seen as an absolute cultural jewel around the world. And every one of them, from from the mess that uh, touring musicians are in because of cabotage and other idiocies after Brexit, to the underfunding of the BBC, to the changes, peculiar things that have been going on would appear at the top end of the BBC, uh, which I don't quite understand everything has gone wrong. So the answer to the question is, in part, yes, but not that doesn't mean to say getting rid of all the entertainment stuff. How worried are you about the whole AI deep fake um, <laughs> revolution? Yeah, because some things are already tried. Yeah. You know, well, they've, they've, they've got, you know, speeches from Keir Starmer going, you know, I love crime or whatever. Um, like, Don't give uh, up the day job. <laughs> I love crime. Well, um, but um, that's my Starmer. But, but you know, are, are, you, are you really concerned that within not too distant future that you clips will be going round every day? Um, that you can't tell if they're real or not. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I was... Uh, Two weeks ago, I was chairing part of a conference in which uh, there was a very interesting speaker on AI, and there was also someone talking about geopolitics. And we talked about fake news, and there was about a thousand people in the audience, and they were sending in questions which appeared on my iPad. And one of the first questions that appeared with very prominently was, uh, could you ask the speaker whether uh, she thinks that David Cameron becoming foreign secretary is a good idea? And I said, here we've got an example of a fake, because I didn't believe it, but it was actually the day in which he became foreign secretary. <laughs> <laughs> so, and the audience started calling out, because they were all on their phones saying, no, it's true, oh, yeah. it's true. So it's not just deep fakes of what is false, but it means that people like me will be very suspicious of what we are yeah. told is true. And that's a problem, it seems to me. Now, the rest are largely complaints about the two main parties, which is very much on brand. Uh, we're going to start with Labour. Um, Jack Lee was says, like most progressives, I'm worried that Labour is going to be so centrist and cautious that it will miss opportunities to do a lot of good. They don't seem interested in repealing many of the worst Tory laws. They aren't committing to a wealth tax. They seem to be accepting financial handcuffs. They will inherit from the Tories, etc. Is this naive, though? Is the real benefit of a Labour government thousands of smaller decisions that are better than those a Tory government would make? Or should we be focused on these big ticket, high profile items? So I suppose it's the thing. Should we, you know, should we settle for, for low expectations or are we right to demand more. Let's put aside the, well, the manifesto hasn't come out yet. Sure, sure, sure. But when it actually comes to the manifesto, is it reasonable to expect some, you know, big hopeful statement? Okay, so um, the, the lengths to which a government can go, right, how radical its policies can be, how transformative it, it can be, how, how bold depends on two things, right? The first one is its intention to do radical transformative things. The second one is its support base, okay? A government elected on a very small majority um, of a, a public that is really not sure about it does not get a long enough chance to introduce transformative policies. Th they tend to be quite unstable mm. and 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 their terms tend to end before the end of the term, actually. So um, if you can um, basically amend your offering to have a very big chunk of the country behind you, to have a very broad base of support, that actually means you can do more radical stuff. I know I know it's counterintuitive. No, just sure. But, but, but you know, and, and I keep going back to things like uh, Sure Start, 
which which on paper looked like nothing. I mean, it mm. it was an important, but but it is genuinely transformative. Free prescriptions, things like that. There, there is a lot of room around the ed- edges to do really big stuff if you've got the public behind well, you. This is, they don't depend on what you announce on the manifesto. Well, this is my problem with the with the Corbyn could have crept over the line in 2017 as the head of a coalition yeah. or minority government thing. And it's like, well, how does that sit with radical policies? Because you're not going to get them through no, a minority creep over the line and then creep back, right. <laughs> creep back again, basically. Yeah. That, that's how that tends to work. So I'm not, I'm not excusing Labour. All I'm saying is there is a balance to be struck, right? Mm. They need to be they need to be bold and transformative enough so that their mandate um, includes that, yeah. as it were. The country expects it, um, but not so much that it means they're elected with a, a sliver of a majority, because that has dangers of its own. Uh, Marie, the other Labour question from Harish Hirani. As Labour streets ahead in the polls, is there any need for them to court the Murdoch press at all, e.g. The Sun? And presumably this also includes the Telegraph papers, which we will be discussing in the extra bit. Well, I, I think it's, it's a hard one to answer because um, I think the Labour Party is effectively just traumatised. And I think that traumatised people in organisations don't always um, act in a way that makes sense to people who are not them or not traumatised. I think Labour, you know, ended up having a number of elections where they really thought they were going to win or thought they could plausibly win. And then obviously everything collapsed or the poll lead collapsed, something happened, etc, etc. Um, and so I think that they are just so scared of doing the wrong thing, making the wrong move, breathing in the wrong way at some point for everything to collapse. And for the Tories to win again somehow, that they're kind of doing absolutely everything in their power to just not fuck up, essentially. But I'm I'm personally not convinced they have to. I think that there's probably a line. You don't have to go the full kind of Jeremy Corbyn. Um, you know, you, you probably don't have to like stand outside News UK and like flick the V's. But but you know, but but again, but I'm not I'm not a Labour person, and I can sort of understand the reasoning of Labour people mm. going, we will do every single thing we can to make sure um, things are fine. Uh, moving on to the uh, the Tories, who seem very unpopular um, no. with our listeners. Um, and again, I suppose on the issue of Labour nerves, uh, Nick Cheney uh, says, way back in 2001, Isaac Levido's old boss, Linton Crosby, these are the Tory strategists, used a fear of refugees to somehow bring an unpopular Conservative government home. Not in the UK, I hasten to add, in case people are thinking this is an alternate timeline. Frankly, I'm pretty worried about this happening again. Are you? Uh, So, Gavin, I suppose one way of putting this, because I still find this on uh, quite a lot on social media, people going, the Tories could still win if they do this, if they press this button, da, 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 da. Do you think that there is any way that they can win? Well, there's ways they can win, I suppose, if, uh, if, Sections of the Labour Party have a, continue having a go at uh, Starmer for suggesting that Margaret Thatcher was one of the great political figures of our lifetime, which obviously she was. I mean, there's no doubt about that. Don't tread on the extra bit here. We'll, oh, we'll be digging okay. deep. <laughs> oh, yeah. I just did that. Um, of course, it's not clear who's going to win the next election, but it does look that it is the Conservative Party's election to lose. And they have had 13 years to try to sort out what they see as an immigration problem and haven't done so. So I don't think there are any parallels with Australia that are actually useful to anybody, frankly, mm. um, in, in this election. And I also think that the migration issue really um drive some people up the wall and they're going to vote according to it, but they are not people who would naturally perhaps be uh, Labour's core vote anyway. So I don't think that that is going to be the biggest election issue. It's going to be, are you better off now than you were 13 years ago? Do you think this government is reasonably competent? Do you think they have a plan? And I suspect on those issues, Labour is more likely to do well. Also, I would point out just just for a, a, a little bit of extra silver lining that um, I think that election in Australia, I think that the Liberal Party, which are their Tories, basically, mm. had been in power for one term, five years, and basically won a second term from being slightly behind in the polls. So I think yeah. that is a very different situation to a party having been in power for 13 years and being 20 I, points behind. I must admit, I, find, I keep getting these, these, these sort of tweets and so on, and I do find that just is very, just very hard to relate to. I, I would I would say it is almost as close as one can get to a 
it's scientific. Don't say it. Impossible. Don't say it. Don't jinx it. Don't jinx it. I just don't say it. People keep saying it. People can't go, oh, what if Liv's Truss? Oh, what if Rishi Suna? No, I know because. Oh, what if this? What if that? Rem and Shishti comes back. What? Rem and Shishti comes back. But the stakes are so high. No, sure, sure. I get it. I understand, but but no. On that subject, Alex, uh-huh. Don Praveen Amara Singh asks, Tory voters are getting older and older and they seem to be the only base that the party is pandering to. What is the long-term future of the Conservative Party? What does the panel think the Tory base will look like in the future? Interestingly, the far right across Europe is actually beginning to draw a lot more of its support from young men Right, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And so maybe that's where the brave tendency is actually aiming for. You know, it's easy to see it as a as a bid for power, just power, but maybe it's also a bid for a renewal of their voter base, as disgusting as it is, maybe electorally, politically, it is the only way they think they can appeal to a younger demographic by going sort of super right wing and using, because I did a very interesting bunker recently on the subject of weaponized shame and um, young men basically really respond to that notion that they've lost their manhood and they've lost their national pride. Right. Well, I've been researching fascism recently. I'm thinking about fascism all the time. And, you know, it was that was a youth movement. Yes. The conservatism, authoritarian conservatism was mainly old people and fascists had the youth. So don't... Um, I always find that the idea, the sort of veneration of young people as sort of naturally progressive is, yeah. is a little shaky. I'm going to go completely the other way here. I think the Tories will definitely have a period of going insane um, in opposition and probably gaining about, you know, 17 votes. But after that, fundamentally, I think Cameroonism kind of worked. Young people, if you look at the polling in 2010 and 2015, young people actually liked David Cameron and liked kind of centre-right Toryism. Like there are lots of kind of middle-class people who are naturally socially liberal, earn decent money, who actually kind of want to vote Conservative. And, and I think it's, it's a case of, you know, you don't have to reinvent the wheel here. A lot of people are naturally centre-right, small-c Conservatives. So I think if the Conservatives can find someone who's not entirely insane and can keep the party on a relatively mm. short... You know, I, leash, I agree completely, by the way. They can, they can win the again with under 50. I agree totally, by the way, in case that wasn't clear. Mm. It, it, you have to go one way yeah, yeah. or the other way. Basically, just keep I promising... I think the weird middle just is just not working for Just keep promising triple lock for pensions to a um, dying demographic <laughs> is not going to work for a long time. This is Adam Bolton. Presumably not that one, mm. although... Might be. Mm-hmm. How long can you hold a Brexit-based grudge against an individual organisation? No, it's not that one. Um, and so then he, it's, a, it's quite a long question, but he goes, I will never buy a Dyson vacuum cleaner. I've avoided Weatherspoon's pubs, but it's going harder to justify a night out. And I try but fail to avoid Warburton's bread. <laughs> <laughs> um, when should we move on? What people organisations have the panel forgiven and forgotten? I am not the right person to ask because I am the pettiest motherfucker who's ever lived. Um, <laughs> there is like genuinely like if if someone has slighted me in some way seven years ago, like most likely a journalist because I'm really no journalist. I will still not share their article on Twitter. Like I can I can no. read it and think this is brilliant. I'm like I will never give you any views. Like you must never know amazing. because you were rude no, to me seven years ago. I'm the same, um, and I yeah. think um, not that I'm buying a lot of vacuum cleaners. And not that I enjoy Weatherspoon's pubs that much. Um, but I think I do hold it against people, uh, against brands. Oh, I say, I'm just like, I'm, I'm just probably not going to. If I've got a choice, yeah, it's, it's not a, a choice. choice yeah. But if I've got a choice, you know, and James Dyson, who's just been in the news, hasn't he, because mm. of losing a libel suit. Yeah. You know, there is something that even when, you know, when you're drying your hands in the toilet, I'm doing a little resentfully. <laughs> mm. I'm going, yes, I, no, I can I'm see like, that. Fuck your airflow, Dyson. <laughs> Don't wash your hands for oh, why, reasons. Oh, why, I'm not going to wash my hands at all. May, I haven't washed my I hands ask, in, uh, since by, 2016. May so. I ask, by the way, why why you were so sure that this wasn't the Adam Bolton, the former Sky journalist? Did you see him hoovering at Weatherspoons at one point <laughs> with a Dyson? I or? just don't think uh, a man of his stature would be um, admitting um, that he's that mm-hmm. petty and about his failure to avoid Warburton's bread. Yeah, does no vacuum like Warburton's bread. I power think and resolve. <laughs> Let us move on to the fun ones. Woo. Tufty McTavish says, how does the panel deal with having to constantly listen to all of the dreadful people? 
They're my friends, Dusty. <laughs> <laughs> no, I cannot stand hearing their voices and actively skip over podcast segments with actual recordings, nor am I going to watch them lie and swerve on my telly box. Just cannot face hearing them. How do you deal with this? Okay, Gavin, I'm going to, you know, come to you first because you obviously have had to meet a lot of these people. These these annoying people that some people just can't bear to to listen to. Again, I have um, a name. <laughs> are you uh, were you ever in the situation where you were interviewing somebody? You don't have to name names, and just thinking you're you're just awful. You you have a grating voice. You're an annoying face. You're <laughs> lying to me. <laughs> no, actually, no. I I mean I've 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 interviewed um you know all kinds of criminals, weirdos, and uh, and psychopaths. Uh, I have to say though that if you're talking about someone that I would fear that I would actually just fall asleep during an interview with, that would be Jacob Rees-Mogg. I just have never interviewed him. And I just feel listening to his voice droning on, I mm. just lose the will to live. Um, and I'm sure he's a lovely person, really, but I just couldn't, I couldn't imagine doing an interview with him. Alex and Marie, are there people that you, that you really struggle with? to listen to. I get very angry when I come, as I've discussed with Jenrick, and I come down to the state mm, program, people mm. don't know who he is. Mm. I'm like, you know, who's this arsehole? Well, and a, Mog, I can't stand his there's voice. There's a lot Draftman, of people, you know. There's a lot of people that annoy me, but I quite enjoy that. Um, and so I, I, it engages me in a weird mm. way, right? But there is one person um, that I can't, I genuinely cannot stand, stand and that's Bill Cash. Just oh. because I know the moment he stands up, I know this is going to be a 15-minute session <laughs> of him going on about some sub-paragraph that he has misread and <laughs> means something completely different and insisting on it. And I just think I just, I haven't, I, I don't want to give you that segment of my life, Bill Cash. Marie, uh, which voice do you have the most visceral reaction to? So weirdly, it always used to be fine. So when I was um, back during the kind of like Brexit war years, I used to have to watch the kind of seven, eight hour long uh, session in the House of Commons. So the one thing I did was that I'd put some classical music in the background. Uh, so it was actually very pleasant, very soothing. Uh, but no, so weirdly, actually, the only two people I really, really, really cannot stand listening to anymore are Boris Johnson and Jeremy Corbyn. And I think I, I just get a genuine trauma <laughs> response from the two of them. If, I'm just, I just cannot, I just can't. If you'd I let him can't. finish, <laughs> <laughs> then you ah, find him so annoying. Yeah, no, it, yeah, no, no, the, the, only those two, weirdly. Everyone else I can sort of listen to, like wouldn't have them over for dinner, but I can listen to a clip. But those two, there's a strong physical reaction. What's your view on Bill Cash? No, again, fine, kind of like, you know, <sighs> yeah. I can I, never again. I don't actively want to listen to him, uh, but if I have to, you know. I mainly read what they've said. I must admit, I'm not so into like the audio. I want to get the message yeah. without having to listen. Hmm. Yeah, um, I get a lot from listening, a lot more than I would if I just read it. After the excited, sorry, this is from Keith James. After the exciting news that Peter Andre has taken over the GB News morning show from Esther McVeigh and Philip Davis, despite not being a Tory MP, which early 2000s reality show participant or X Factor contestant would the panel like to see take over as Minister of State without portfolio? Susan Boyle is my <laughs> choice. I just think the impact of her just appearing in front of you, um, bedraggled, and then suddenly starting to sing. Voice of an angel. It would just make you sign any kind of agreement. <laughs> she would be terrific in international negotiations. Everyone would go, oh, yes, Susan Boyle, I sign treaty. <laughs> I, don't, I don't even know where that accent was from. But I think she'd be terrific. She should be um, the the face of Britain. <laughs> um, I would say for, for a similar era, I would say Girls Aloud. Okay. Uh, because there's there's four of them. Yeah. Um, they work well together. Well, I mean, obviously they've been split up for many years and only recently reunited, but that's, you know, hmm. that's okay. They've, they've, they can harmonise together. Yeah, um, that's true. Always good. Yeah, represent different bits of the nation as well. Right. Cheryl Tweedy mm. would be very good probably levelling up. Mm. Yeah. I don't want to stereotype. <laughs> um, but, you know, a very strong regional voice. And I, I interviewed them once, and uh, Kimberly was just very, just very diplomatic, very efficient. Obviously, the one in charge. So probably like, 
Lisa Nandy always reminds me of Kimberly from Girls Aloud. Mm. So that, a little bit. Yes, I can yeah. see that. I can yeah. see that. Yeah. Um, also, the woman with all the little dogs. Wasn't there a woman with all the little dogs? I think you're thinking that of Cruella Deville. No, no, no. <laughs> no, there was a woman that won something that had trained poodles. I remember this. Absolutely no idea what I, you're on about. I remember this very clearly. She won Britain's Got Talent with some sort of trained poodle show. And I think she would be actually very good now that That's we Chief know... That's surely. Well, now that we know the, the average yeah. intelligence of other ministers, I think she'd be go, just sit there with a clicker going, no, Esther McVeigh, no, no, no. And then when she stopped, give her a little treat. Just go, no, Jacob Rees-Mogg. <laughs> click, click, click. Finally, Sarah B.R. says, it's Christmas and the panel gets to gift our political overlords much-needed presents. What are you buying for the great and good? I'd buy Boris Johnson a conscience and I'd buy uh, Rishi Sunak some Riz. He does <laughs> some Riz. Go to the Riz oh, no, store. Oh, no, sorry, I've, I've got it, got it. No, I think I was just going to buy Rishi a one-way ticket to California. Like, he clearly does not want to be here anymore anyway. <laughs> we don't want him to be here. absolutely love that, just, I think. He would, yeah, I think just send them back. They'd be so, he'd be so happy in California. Alex? Um, uh, maybe hear some um, vocal lessons. I still think that is an issue. Um, you know, he just needs to bring it down into his diaphragm and do a little bit of warm-up and that kind of thing because um, it's all a little bit trapped in the in what we call the mask in the business. Um, it's all very nasal and it's, it's actually quite off-putting. It's not a delightful voice to listen to. No, it, it doesn't have to be a delightful voice to listen to. The problem is that with nasal um, voices that they sound insincere, they sound not genuine hmm. because it is diaphragm that connects you to what people consider to be genuine emotion. Basically. Also perhaps some riz. And yes, yes. I, I think I think Starmer's got a bit of riz. I disagree. Well, maybe. <laughs> Although he's got a hot wife. Yeah, well, so, so maybe know. he's just saving it for <laughs> the people he wants to riz. I never want That's... to hear that word again. <laughs> also, can I say... Like having on, dinner with all my dads. On Sunak's <laughs> lack of riz, I mean, he did marry a, a sort of billionaire heiress. So mm. who's the fool, Marie? Who's the fool? I regret coming on today. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad that we've ruined a word for you. What's going on in the American election scare and bemuse you in equal measure? Want to know what Biden and Trump are up to without tearing your hair out? Then you need to listen to American Friction, the brand new podcast about the countdown to the big vote in November from the makers of Oh God, What Now, The Bunker and Paper Cuts. Every Friday, we'll speak to leading experts and blockbuster commentators from the United States to explain the latest news and the big issues behind the vote. That's American Friction with me, Jacob Jarvis. Me, Chris Jones. And me, Nikki McCann Ramirez. Out every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. We've reached the end of the show, uh, so we've just got time to talk about stories that have gone under the radar this week. Uh, Gavin. My under the radar story is from UNICEF, the League Tables on Child Poverty, put UK at the bottom of 39 out of 39 countries for child poverty getting worse. I just think that somehow <sighs> looking at uh, sending people to Rwanda isn't going to cure, cure child poverty. I think this is absolutely disgraceful. So there we are. UNICEF report, I, I, well worth your looking at. I also saw that the average height of British children had uh, dipped slightly, which is always an indicator yeah. of uh, yeah. you know health and, and nutrition. Yeah. It's shock. It is absolutely shocking. We're supposed to be a rich country and uh, we have got, I think it was as roughly one in five children maybe in or on the edge of poverty. Actually, so on the topic of vaping, obviously one of my favourite topics. Um, but no, in France, the uh, National Assembly has voted to ban single-used vapes. 
which I think is a really good idea. So it's now going to go to the Senate, but it's expected to, you know, be waved through. Mm. So it's almost certainly going to become law uh, next year. But, you know, it just strikes me as such an obvious good idea. And, you know, obviously you do want to prevent kids, I think, from getting really hooked on nicotine because, you know, we did a really good job at stopping kids from taking up smoking. So it feels really silly for them to be vaping now. Um, but also, you know, I do feel quite strongly that adults should be able to have nicotine if they want to. Um, so, so which is why I'm against the idea of making, was it like vapes uh, prescription only, which is a, a lay, potential labour idea or, yeah. That seems ridiculous. It, so oh, no, could, absolutely. You could buy cigarettes, provided mm. you're over a certain age, um, but you'd have to go to the doctor to get vaping liquid to help you stop yeah, smoking mm. cigarettes. Oh, it's completely insane. So I, I do think that, again, banning the single-use vapes are the ones with all the really fancy flavours and they look fun, they're colourful, fun shapes, etc. Like, they're the ones teens buy. Like, they're not, you know, the one I have, yeah. which is just black and looks like a USB stick and the taste is tobacco. Like, that's not what they use. Like, teenagers yeah. do not want to have to plug in the little vape on their USB kind of thingy. Um, so, yeah, it just strikes me as a really, really good policy. I, think and just, I don't understand why we're not doing it here. Just insist that all vapes are clunky and boring. Um, Alex, mine is um, the re- the government's response to his Hillsborough report, um, which ordinarily would be front page news, really, on any other week than this week. But this week, I suspect it's not even going to manage page six. Um, so it's six years since the report on Hillsborough, on how basically the state reacted to the victims and their families. Um, It's extraordinary that it's taken six years for the government to just respond to that. Um, And they don't go as far. They go a fair way down the recommendations that have been suggested. For instance, they accept the need of an advocate for like families of victims of big disasters like that. It's absolutely mad that in an inquest, the families have no standing. They've got no legal locus for someone to represent them. But it doesn't go far enough in that it doesn't adopt the recommendation to put a duty of honesty and openness for public bodies on a statutory footing, which is what the report called for. And and I think it will need to be revisited, actually, because just doing a code of conduct is not strong enough. Okay, uh, mine is a foreign policy story. Venezuela has revived a 200-year-old territorial dispute over Guyana's Essex. Kibo region because it has oil, gas and minerals, which has transformed its economy into the fourth strongest in the Americas in the space of five years. Uh, In a suspiciously low turnout referendum, voters endorsed President Maduro's claim of sovereignty. Inevitably, tankies are accusing Guyana of imperialism because uh, it's selling some of this oil to US companies and saying that uh, it's anti-imperialist to annex two thirds of the country. Um, Venezuela is unlikely to actually invade, but it's a very Putin-y kind of move. And as a result of this, having not given Guyana too much thought before, um, I discovered it's kind of uh, fascinating. Uh, It's 30% Hindu, currently has a Muslim president, and is the only country in South America, for old actual imperial reasons, where the official language is English. Mm. And I'm generally against annexing two thirds or or any fraction of somebody else's territory. but this seems like a weird, a genuinely weirdly underreported story that yeah. I only came across um, on Twitter because people were, were dunking on tankies, which is where I get most of my news. And that's the show. Thanks to Marie. Thank you. Gavin. Thank you very much. And Alex. Thank you. Stay tuned for the extra bit after Demon is a Monster by Corner Shop. And thank you to our supporters. You too could join them and get the podcast early and with our ads plus lots more if you search Oh God, What Now? Patreon. Just for Marie... Happy Rismas. <laughs> Go away. <laughs>Hello and welcome aboard to Adele Ronsley, Scott, and Suzanne Wilkinson McKatie. Big thanks for your support, and hello from me to Chris Sorley, Phil Hoggart, and Susan Leeper. Hello, welcome, many thanks, happy Christmas, and all other available greetings from me to Alex Dunhill, DB, and Gemma Holland. And welcome back to some of our lapsed backers who have come home at Christmas, like Chris Rear. Pat Scott, Richard Roberts, and Rick Bean. Oh God, What Now? is presented by Dorian Linsky with Marie LeConte, Gavin Esler, and Alex Andre. The group editor was Andrew Harrison, the managing editor was Jacob Jarvis, and the producers were Chris Jones and me, Alex Reese, the Risk King. 
Jesus, do not let me say that ever again. Socials by Jess Harpin and Mike Bolland. Art direction by James Parrott and Mark Taylor. Oh God, What Now is a Podmasters production. Welcome to the Extra Bit, exclusively for Patreon backers. Last weekend, Keir Starmer caused a rumpus with an article in the Sunday Telegraph in which he named three prime ministers who brought meaningful change in British politics, Clement Attlee, Tony Blair, and, uh uh-oh, Margaret Thatcher, who apparently sought to drag Britain out of its stupor by setting loose unnatural entrepreneurialism. What was that? (laughs) (laughs) Cue outrage from the left, a Daily Mirror front page accusing Starmer of playing with fire. Why, 33 years after she left office and 10 years after she died, is Thatcher still she who must not be named? Alex. Yes. A lot of people on social media will have seen this this ruckus. Um, What do you think Starmer's idea was there? I don't know, <laughs> to be entirely honest. I thought that, you know, basically what he was aiming to do was that there are prime ministers that are impactful and leave a legacy and those who are not. And I'm very much hoping to be the former mm-hmm. rather than the latter. Um, he ex- And he expressed it in a, in a rather clunky way, which would be predictably overreported as you know, Starmer, Hearts, Maggie. Well, I mean, Um, I thought praise was too much. But when you look at the phrase drag Britain out of its stupor, that does mean the Labour government (laughs) at the time. And perhaps, you know, obviously it wasn't a brilliant time, but you probably don't want to be kind of endorsing the Tory uh, narrative that Labour broke everything. I guess so. Although this went hand in hand, I think, with much closer European um, integration because... Margaret Thatcher at that time was incredibly (coughs) pro-European community and Labour Party was quite anti. So, I mean, there are are different things. Like I said, I don't know, you know... um, he he did describe her, I think, as dynamic and, you know, things that describe a sort of a character and a style rather than comment on the quality of the policies. But then he mentioned her again today, Wednesday, as we record, during Prime Minister's questions. So I'm now thinking maybe it wasn't that accidental and maybe maybe he's just maybe he's just trolling the other side. And that was a teaser for the bonus bit of this week's podcast. If you'd like a bit more Oh God, What Now every week without ads and a day early, then you can sign up to back us on Patreon for as little as £3 a month. You'll also get our exclusive weekly mini-cast, Oh God, What Else, every Monday morning, and some merchandise and stuff. Thanks for listening. See you next week. Oh God, what now?